Father, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us and provide for us and sustain us and carry us along uh, by your power. And today, as we continue to work our way through Acts, we pray that you'll give us wisdom, that you'll give us insight to understand the things that you have revealed to us, to know where we've come from, and also to have a vision for where we're headed, uh, which is so important. Uh, and so we uh, ask that you'll bless our time together. Pray that you'd bless all those who are taking time out of their day to come and study, that the things that we do together will make us useful and fruitful uh, in our knowledge of you. And so we ask all this for your great name's sake. Amen. All right, y'all. Last week, we just got into chapter two of the book of Acts. In your notes, that's on page 17. And, you know, I've got the whole, I'm going to have the whole text of Acts in your notes so you don't have to flip back and forth through your Bibles and so forth. So we're in page 17 on your notes. Um, and if you've got those two handouts, I'm going to wind up talking about both of those today. The new one that's out on the table, Israel's calendar. I'll talk about that in just a second. And then the other one, we're going to talk about the filling and baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because that's exactly what happens here in chapter 2 uh, of Acts. And so let, let, let me read... Let's just read this whole section, the text that's there on page 17. Let me read through this whole thing together. We've already done some work in it last week, but I want to, again, set, set the context this week for what's going on. Acts 2, 1 through 13, uh, Luke tells us now, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. That's talking about the apostles and the disciples, those that were mentioned at the end of chapter 1. There's about, a, about 120 of them. Uh, in one place. And then uh, verse 2, it says, Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames that were divided appeared to them and rested on each, each of them. And then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages. Or using the old... Um, the old word there, they begin to speak in different tongues, right? There's clearly a wordplay going on between the tongues of fire that rest and then them speaking in different languages, different tongues, uh, as the Holy Spirit gave them, gave them the ability for speech. Uh, verse 5 at the bottom of the page. Now, there were Jews uh, staying, living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all uh, these who are all speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own la uh, native language? And there are Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia. Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, uh, we hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. And they were all astounded and perplexed, and they said to one another, what could this be? Uh, but some of them sneered and said, well, they're all full of new wine. In other words, they're all drunk and talking... Uh, now, I'll talk about the tongues in just a second. We didn't talk much about that last week. First thing I want to do is uh, your, that handout that I gave you today, Israel's calendar, just so you can see where we are. Uh, we talked about this last week, but it's easier to see when you have a chart of it than just hear words coming out of my mouth. 
trying to explain something that's somewhat complicated. Especially things with numbers in it. I mean, I, I can't remember numbers to save my life. If I had to call my wife without my cell phone, I'd be in severe trouble. You know what I'm talking about? Um, so here in this chart, if you, if you look at the bottom of it with the little wheel, uh, in the very center of the wheel, you have a bunch of weird names, except for Nissan. We all, we're familiar with that one, right, because of the car manufacturer. But that's also a month in the Jewish calendar, uh, Nisan, and if you go around from kind of the 12, uh, 12 o'clock mark in the very center there around Nisan, Iyar, Sivan, Tammuz, right? Uh, those are all the names of the Hebrew months. And if you notice right outside of that, I have our months uh, correlated to that, and you can see they're not in sync, right? I mean, that's fairly obvious. Uh, they're split, and that's because uh, the Jews in the first century and up until that point, uh, these months are based on a lunar calendar, a strict 30-day month. Our calendar, which is, you know, the Julian calendar, based on the Julian calendar, as we call it, uh, ours is based on the solar cycles. And so you have, you know, 30 days, 31 days. All, so it gets everything out of whack. And that's why I've put, also put our, um, our months in there so you can see how they overlap. And that should look familiar to you because uh, in the outer ring, we have the main feast days. So this one is oriented at 12 o'clock toward Passover because um, that's one of the main ones, of course. And that's exactly where we are. Uh, Passover and, and the, the numbers beside that, the 14 and then Passover, right? 15 to 21, unleavened bread, 16. For, that's the days of the month that the feast took place on. So uh, first uh, uh, Passover generally took place on the 14th of Nisan, which falls somewhere in March and April. And if you keep up with this on our calendar, it's always at a different place every year, right? Because of the, again, the lunar cycles and all that. We're not getting into all that. It's, that's even beyond me to try to explain and understand. Uh, but what happens then is we've had this cycle that we talked about last week. Passover takes place on the 14th day of, of Nisan of that month, which is, you know, in, in March, April for us, somewhere in through there. And that begins uh, the larger feast of unleavened bread. Uh, that feast begins the next day, runs through the 15th to the 21st. And then another festival happens on the 16th which is the Feast of first fruits, And we, we, took, we looked at that last week because it's interesting. The crucifixion of Jesus took place on Passover, right, of the month, on the day of Passover, when they were uh, sacrificing the sacrificial lambs in commemoration of the old Passover. Uh, Jesus was being sacrificed in his crucifixion. Then the very next day on Saturday, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread happened, and that ran from the 15th to the 21st, right? And then uh, on the 16th, uh, you have the Feast of first fruits, which is the day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the first day of the week on a Sunday. And that just happened to be uh, the beginning of the Feast of first fruits. And as we talked about last week in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about Jesus' resurrection as he is the first fruits of those who have uh, fallen asleep or died. Right? And so it's interesting how, he, how those major events fall into those major feast days that the Lord instructed uh, through Moses Israel to keep and so forth. So 
when we come over now in Acts chapter 2, we heard that when the day of Pentecost had arrived, uh, if you notice, if you, if you look around, going around that, um, the chart there at the bottom, you come over to about the, you know, in between the two and the three o'clock position and you get the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, which is a celebration of the harvest that begins um, on the sixth day of the month of Sivan. And it happens 50 days after the feast of, I'm sorry, the uh, celebration of Passover. And that's why it's called Pentecost, right? Penta, referring to 50. Um, 50 days later, you have this uh, celebration. And on that day, that's when the Holy Spirit is poured out, which is also a celebration of the beginning of the harvest. Isn't that interesting, right? Um, I mean, it's almost like the Lord had planned this whole thing out, you know, when you're really looking at it. I mean, goodness gracious. Uh, also, we were, you know, we were told in the first chapter of Acts that in between his resurrection and the coming of the day of Pentecost, Jesus had been teaching and appearing to the disciples for a period of about 40 days. And he had ascended in chapter one, but he told them, y'all stay in the city until the Holy Spirit comes, until the promise of the Father comes. So they've been waiting in, in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit is poured out. And that's what we have in chapter 2 here. And so last week we talked about the effects of the Holy Spirit uh, coming upon the early disciples. There's a sound like a violent rushing wind. It comes, it fills the whole house. And then uh, something that looks like flame of, of fire, tongues, uh, right, so so lapping flame, something that looks like that comes and and divides, and rests over each of the disciples. Um, as far as I can tell, these are all. Th this happens to all the disciples that are present. The whole 120. Remember, Luke had told us there were about 120 of them that were gathered together. So this is not just something that's happening to the apostles, to the 12. Uh, you know that you know that had been handpicked by Jesus, uh, Judas has been replaced by Matthias at this point. So the Holy Spirit falls on, comes upon these early disciples. And uh, as they see it happening, right, it happens visibly. So they have some idea of what's going on. And then verse, verse four, you have this uh, word that we're going to hear a lot when the Holy Spirit shows up. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in different uh, languages, different tongues as the Spirit gave them the ability for speech. And uh, let me just say something about that tongues, because I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the Holy Spirit here. It, if you notice, as they begin to speak, what they're saying is intelligible to other people. Because the people that are there from all these different districts and places, they, they hear the disciples speaking, and it's not gibberish to them. It's not babbling. They hear them speaking to them in their own languages about the mighty works of God, right? Uh, and this, you know, this is an important thing because y'all know within, you know, the traditions of Christianity, there are some uh, Pentecostal groups that, you know, practice the gift of tongues and whatnot. And a lot of times it just sounds like gibberish and nobody knows what's going on. And uh, even Paul addresses that in First uh, Corinthians when he's talking about the gifts. He's, you know, he's talking about the distribution of the gifts and he, he talks specifically about the gift of languages speaking those. And he says, listen, if somebody has the gift of languages and they get up to speak, they shouldn't speak unless there's somebody there to interpret so that everybody can understand what's going on. Well, all that's been really 
twisted out of shape in, in our time. And it, the, you know, the gift of tongues has become for some groups uh, a sign that the Holy Spirit has come. But we're going to see other groups in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit comes and they don't speak in foreign languages. Uh, in fact, the, the, the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is the one person, just like Jesus before him, who does not submit to anybody's rules. He does what he wants to do, and they're just trying to figure out, okay, what just happened? You know, and we'll, we'll see that as we go along here. Uh, so, this, so this gift of languages is so that the disciples can immediately communicate to these other Jewish brothers and sisters exactly what's going on. Right? You follow me? To help them understand what's happening as they've gathered at Passover, one of the great feast days for Jewish people. Uh, some of these people have probably made pilgrimages from all of the, um, all the different places that they're talking about here, as far as Rome, right? Jews and proselytes. And as we talked about last week, uh, another thing we're going to see is, is that hearing this good news, hearing the gospel, Paul and Peter are going to make the case that it was given to the Jew first, but then also to the Gentiles, everybody who was not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here, these gifts are poured out first and the Jewish people hear these things and they get to hear the explanation of what's happening first. And so really, really important in the larger scheme of what the Lord's doing here. And, and as we go forward, we're going to talk about the role of Israel in all of this. It's going to be a major theme in Acts, uh, particularly as the nation continues to reject uh, Jesus and his followers in these earlier chapters and so forth. So we're going, we're going to come back to that uh, few more times as we go through here. Now, anybody have any questions or comments on that? I've been talking for a long time without a break. Any, everybody tracking along okay? That's a lot of stuff. Just, here we go. Yeah, Harlan? Would it be safe to say that the, 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 at least the primary use of tongues is to speak the gospel rather than this? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It's, it's always uh, to speak the gospel and even more generally to proclaim the truth, you know? That, that's, that's the primary use of it and so forth. And if you go read that passage in, what is it, 1 Corinthians 13, 14, so forth, you know, Paul, uh, Paul makes a big point about the fact that if somebody's just speaking in a known language and nobody can understand it, well, that doesn't edify anybody, right? And, and then he talks about the more difficult one, which is, you know, prophetic utterances where people speak and uh, the deep secrets of somebody's heart is revealed, <laughs> right uh, now, uh, I don't know if you've ever had anybody do that to you before. I've had that done to me a couple of times, and it is unnerving. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you know. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes, depending on what it is, if it if if it if it gels, I'm like okay. But a lot of times, I'm like, well, it's funny he ain't told me that yet, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and, and I always I, the, the, the people who I've heard that the most from are always people that are trying to get me to do what they want me to do. <laughs> right. You know, it's funny how the spirit works that way. You know, man. Is it possible that they were all speaking their language, but the spirit was translating into all these different. That's a possibility, except for what Luke says in verse four where he says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages. There you go. Right? Okay. So, yeah. So, yeah. I know, and y'all probably have heard stories like this. I know missionaries who have gone into 
other places, right? They're doing apostolic work and they're trying to figure out how to communicate. And they, in their head, they're speaking language, their language, but the people that are hearing are hearing it in their own language. You know, so I know there are examples where the Lord has done that kind of thing. You know, I mean, it blows your mind. That doesn't, boy, that doesn't fit in any kind of, you know, uh, (laughs) how do you explain that? Um, Yeah, boy, howdy. Uh, Wild. Uh, anybody else? Any, any questions on that so far? Now, again, we, we still got a lot of things to mine out here, so um, we're probably going to touch on some things if you don't have anything. All right, let me, let me talk for a minute. I think Jack brought this question up a couple of weeks ago uh, about the filling and baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I gave you this handout last week, and we didn't quite get to it. Um, so here in chapter 2 of Acts, we have this pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And this is a great time to, to talk about this particularly as we go forward, because uh, Luke talks about these events using kind of a a fairly significant range of words and ideas. And just a couple of really, really fascinating things about this. First of all, um, let me me talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The first time that shows up, that, that phrase shows up, is in Luke 3, and those of you that did the Luke study last year, we looked at this very briefly, and it was actually said by John the Baptist. When John the Baptist is out doing his ministry as a precursor to Jesus, preparing for the way of Jesus, uh, and people are coming to him to be baptized for, the rep- uh, for, the, uh, for repentance, um, for the forgiveness of their sins, and so John, in that context, he, he tells the people that are coming to him, very top of that handout, he says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Right? And so we talked about that last week, uh, last year. I'm not going to get into the fire part because that'll, that'll take us out in left field a little bit. I just want to focus on what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, really interesting thing happens. Uh, That phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, only shows up three times in Luke and Acts. John says it here, right? Uh, In fact, this this is on the flip side of that handout, on the conclusion part of it. The the second side of it, everybody see the conclusion? There's four conclusions down there. So this is exactly what I'm about to say. The first one, there are only three references in Luke Acts that mention the baptism of the Holy Spirit directly. John the Baptist in Luke 3.16. So he talks about it's going to happen, right? Then it appears again, and we read this last week. Jesus says it in Acts 1, 4 through 5. You can see that in your notes uh, on page, at the bottom of page 13, where Jesus gives the disciples and the apostles instructions to stay in Jerusalem. And in uh, 1.5, he says, uh, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Right? So Jesus talks about this work of the Holy Spirit as being baptized uh, by, by the Holy Spirit. So that's the second reference to it. And then the third reference happens. Uh, when Peter is sent to Cornelius's house, if you remember this episode, if you're familiar with Acts, Peter is sent to Cornelius, who is not a Jew. He's, he's a Gentile. He's, he's part of the nations. And Peter is sent to Cornelius's house to tell them about Jesus. 
And as he's telling them about Jesus, the Holy Spirit descends on those people, right? And fills those people. And at that minute, uh, as, as uh, Peter is retelling the story later to the apostles, he, he says, you know, when that happened, I remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, right? So that's the only three references to being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Notice, if you, if you notice in chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes, Luke doesn't say they were baptized by the Holy Spirit. He says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And one of the things we're going to do, and this is what I've given you on the handout, there are, you know, on that handout, you've got, what, 22 points there. And those are all the major references to the Holy Spirit in Luke and Acts. And, and, I, and I've tried to group them together according to his activity and so forth. Um, so the main word, uh, as you go through that list, the main word that, that Luke will use to talk about this work of the Holy Spirit is that he will fill people. Now, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Like in chapter two here, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, in uh, Luke, the very first thing that we hear about this is that John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. Right. As he's conceived and, is in his, and he's in his mother's womb, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from then. Um, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit when Mary comes to visit her. You remember this? And she realizes, oh, wow, OK, something bigger is going on here. Uh, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies. Uh, the Holy Spirit is upon Simeon when he arrives in the spirit. Uh, and he prophesies over baby Jesus. So all of these early references to the Spirit in Luke, um, Mary conceives when the Holy Spirit descends upon her in Luke one thirty-five. So uh, you can go through and you can read that list uh, and see what all is going on there. But um, when, I, when I just talk about the conclusions, uh, four, four things uh, about this that I think are significant. And I want to talk about this now because we're, we're going to trace these as we go through Luke. And you're going to see all these different references and the different words and the, the different um, verbs that Luke uses to describe the Holy Spirit's activity. Uh, first of all, that baptism is only mentioned those three times in Luke and Acts. Then the second thing, in Paul's theology, um, we have been baptized into Jesus' death in Romans 6 and also Colossians 2. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ's body, the church. Right? Uh, also in the list of the foundational ones of the faith, there is only one baptism in Ephesians 4, 5. I think that's probably a reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which water baptism in some sense symbolizes, along with every other thing it symbolizes. So um, the third thing then... Um, and, and I think this is the larger net that's going on, or the larger concept that's going on. Third thing, the very concept of baptism points to an, and that should be event, point to an event which inaugurates a person into a whole new people group. It can point to their washing away of the old life in order to live into a new life. In the larger thought of Luke-Acts, it seems to me that Luke is describing the wide-ranging effects of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with all of the other terms that he uses, the filling, the receiving, etc., all these things we're going to see. In other words, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit is to be completely immersed in his power and presence. And so 
this baptism then gets described in Acts by his filling, by, by people receiving him, by him empowering people, by him being present with people, right? You follow what I'm saying? And, and the catch-all term then is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, completely immersed in him. Um, and so they are the last thing, as far as I can tell, the Holy Spirit is only given once to a believer, but that person may be filled with the Spirit for subsequent tasks. And so we're going to see uh, Peter and you know, the other apostles who experienced this first thing here at Pentecost, Peter's going to be out preaching and Luke is going to say, and Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, the Spirit's going to empower Peter to speak and to preach and do the other things that he needs to do. And so it just seems to me that in Luke and Acts, uh, and again, let me say this in the background. If you remember, we said, and we know that Luke was a traveling companion with Paul, in the latter part of the Apostle Paul's ministry, you know, Paul who wrote the letters in the New Testament. And so I just, I can't help but think that Paul's theology and his teaching has really influenced Luke in the way he understands these things and the way he is putting his narrative together so people can clearly understand what happened in these early days of the church. And so um, Luke is, and, and another thing that Luke will do is he will introduce a word that he won't use again, but then he'll just explain what it is in the next several verses. Like, uh, we probably won't get to it today. Maybe, I don't know. At the very end of Peter's sermon, uh, it talks about what the early church was doing. And it says they were all devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. If y'all, right? We all know that word. That's what you do on Sunday afternoon when you get together to eat, right? We're all fellowshipping. That's as far removed from what that word means as anything you could get, right? The word in Greek is the word koinonia, and it, and it literally means something like to, to gather and have together, right? And that's, Luke only uses that word one time. But then in the subsequent chapters, he will explain what that word means, and it is radical. He will say, now all the believers were together, and they held everything in common, and anybody that had land or possessions, they would often sell what they had so that nobody had any need for anything. That's what koinonia is. That's what it is. It's not just fellowship and hanging out with people that you like. It is having everything in common so that nobody in your group goes without. And by the way, that's not communism. A lot of people have confused... <laughs> What the early churches did. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go on a rant when we get into chapter four about that. But y'all just hang on. We're going to get there later. Um, so, so Luke will often introduce the word and then he'll explain it. And so I think he introduces this, this idea, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you were to ask, well, wait a minute, what, is what was John the Baptist talking about? What was Jesus talking about? Well, it's the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's the descent of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's Jesus' people being completely inundated in the work of the Holy Spirit, right? You, you follow what I'm saying? Just like you're being submerged in water. It's the Holy Spirit is it, and also being filled, right? Uh, a good way to say it is you're drowning in the Holy Spirit, right? He is within you. He is around you. He is with you, right? All these prepositions you want to add to it, which is, by the way, the last point down there. And I threw this one in again, because I think Luke ties in some to Paul's theology. In uh, the last conclusion, uh, number four, down on the back part of that page, in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, Paul admonishes the church there not to get drunk with wine, 
but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, the verb that Paul uses there, I, I think a better translation might be uh, always be overflowing with the Spirit. Speaking, singing, giving thanks, submitting. He gives this list of things that we do when we're filled, overflowing with the Spirit. And the reason that I put it there is that Paul is not telling them that you don't have the Holy Spirit and you need to be filled with him, right? Because he has already made it clear early in Ephesians that the Holy Spirit has already been given to them, right? He's already present within them. They've already been baptized in him. And so here he's explaining what it looks like to be overflowing with the Spirit. And there are so many commentators I see that, that, that miss this connection because notice what he starts with. Don't get drunk with wine. He, he says, don't get drunk with wine. That is utter foolishness. It leads to nonsense, right? And we all know that. Getting drunk leads to nonsense, right? Instead, though, be overflowing with the Spirit. When you're drunk, you get, you're overflowing. <laughs> Maybe literally, right? I don't want to go too far. But you're overflowing with whatever spirit it is you're drinking. Isn't it interesting that we... The spirits, right? Isn't it interesting how we use that word to define alcoholic substances, right? Spirits. Because that thing comes in and takes over, right? From you know, the way people used to understand the world. So when, when, when you do that... What are you doing? You're, you're overflowing with that, whatever you've most internalized, right? And whatever's working on you, the power of those spirits <laughs> working within you, right? And then immediately says, Paul says, be overflowing with the, with the spirit, uh, speaking, singing, giving thanks. Whenever you get a lot of people together at the bar and they get drunk, <laughs> right? Y'all know that some of our best hymns were old drinking songs, <laughs> So, so here, the, um, you know, this idea of being overflowing with the Spirit is we are overflowing with the Spirit, with the things that the Spirit's wanting to do within us. And the same thing happens in the book of Acts, right? Peter is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and what's he going to be overflowing with? He's going to be overflowing with the gospel and with the truth and with preaching, right? He's going to fill early believers, and they're going to be overflowing with the love of Christ, right? So th this idea of the filling of the Spirit uh, in, in Luke is really, I think, the description of all of the effects of this being baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Are you all tracking along? Uh, and, and, it's, and, and it's also, we'll, we'll, we'll look at some other things. It's a little, the, the way Luke uses it is a little bit different than what some of the other uh, writers in the New Testament, the way they use those ideas. And I'll talk about some of those when we get to specific passages in Acts. But I wanted to give you the handout so you all can work your way through this. And then as we go through, we're going to talk a lot about some of these references. And, you know, this is something that we often do, not we, but the scriptures often do, is that we get these different facets of one thing that's fairly complex, sophisticated, maybe. And so you have to have all these different words to talk about what's going on in it. You know, um, like in um, um, like in Colossians one, where Paul is talking about creation and he says, you know, just to summarize what he says there, he says everything is being created by through and for Jesus. Jesus is the agent of creation, right? He is the one through whom God created all things, right? Uh, that's the by. Everything's being, and I love this one, everything's been created for him. Everything ex that exists belongs to Jesus. That's why Paul can say to believers in Corinthians, your body is not your own, right? This is a common misunderstanding in 
modern times. We think our body belongs to us. No, Jesus is letting us rent this thing. It belongs to him. And that's why there's accountability, right? How, how did you use what I've given to you? I mean, if you think about it, everything belongs to him, right? It's by him, it's uh, for him, and it's also through him, right? He, he, again, he's the means that the Lord used through the spoken word. How that works, I have no idea. But we get these, you know, facets, and that's what I think is going on here, that we're going to see these different works of the Holy Spirit. He fills, he empowers, he he, he is present with them, right? He's moving, he's doing things, you know? It's, um, it's really wild. Yeah, Tom? I read a little book by John Scott. Uh-huh, yeah. And I can't get that out of the Greek meaning, but he believed that part of the filling of the Spirit was like when a wind filled a sail. Yeah, 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 yeah. So when you think yeah. about yes. That is that is actually the the that's the very word that Peter uses when he is describing um, how the prophets wrote the scriptures and also how the things were written that these weren't men who came up with their own ideas and wrote them down. These were men who were, and he says, carried along, blown along by the Holy Spirit. And that word is used elsewhere of wind blowing into a sail and carrying things along. Right? Yeah. So that's that. That 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 might be exactly where he's drawn that from. Yeah. So and, you know, it's um, and it is very clear. I mean, we're, we're going to get to specific things like that in Acts where the movements and the activities of the apostles are blown along by the Holy Spirit. You know, Philip is a great example. Philip is 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 taken down. Uh, Spirit leads him to go talk to an Ethiopian guy who just happens to be in a chariot reading the prophet Isaiah about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, right? Philip needs to go talk to somebody. He's primed. He's ready to go. Philip goes down, shares the gospel with him. A guy becomes a believer. They baptize him in a mud hole and immediately the spirit takes Peter up and literally takes him up and puts him somewhere else. Now, how that happens, I mean, yeah, absolutely, you know. I think God was kick-starting yeah, the church. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, so absolutely. Of things that we see are kind of yeah. extraordinary. Absolutely, and that's part, uh, you know, Paul, uh, Luke had said earlier in chapter 1 that Jesus uh, appeared alive after the crucifixion with many convincing proofs. One of the things we'll see uh, here in next week and in, in, uh, at the end of chapter two is that the apostles are going out and they're still doing mir miraculous works. People are getting healed. All kind of things are happening. It says fear fell on the people. And so for Luke, these miraculous works are the confirmation that this is for real. You know, you can't get your mind or, you know, you, you can't you can't doubt what's happening when you see these incredible works being done. You know, and this this pouring out of the spirit. And the speaking in different languages, that's one of the things, you know, that's it's yeah. The, you know, what, what, I, I said this earlier, but I, the older I get, the more I realize this. The Lord is in no way interested in following our rule book, <laughs> doing what we think he ought to do. You know, he does whatever he wants to do. And a lot of times it's just hang on, enjoy the ride. I'm about to blow your mind, you know. Uh, and, and, and it's just and it's just little things. I, uh, a friend of mine sent me a birthday uh, text this morning. And, and as I responded to him, I said, uh, thanks, brother. That means a lot. You have enriched my life. And he wrote back. He said, it's so weird you use that word. He said, yesterday I was just reading an article uh, about the word enrichment. 
And he said, I've, he said, I started thinking, I need to use that word more. He says, so it's crazy you say that. The minute I get off the text, I get an email from somebody else who says to me, Stacy, thanks for all you do. You have been a real enrichment to my life. <laughs> you know, so the spirit often works in big ways and he also works in little bitty ways, you know. Uh, I, I don't know if y'all have ever had this. Sometimes somebody will pop into my head that I hadn't thought about in years. And I'll think, you know, and, and usually what I'll, I'll take that as a nudge for, I need to pray for that person, you know. So I'll pray, but I, don't, I, don't, I can't tell you how many times this has happened. That person will pop into my head. I will start to pray. And as I'm starting to pray in my mind, my phone will ring and it will be that person. And man, I'm just like, oh, <laughs> man, the ghosts up in here, you know, like, getting crazy. Uh, yeah. So how do you know? How, how do you know? I mean, re- really, really cool stuff. And we think we're in charge. We think we're in charge. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The great myth of modernity is we think we're in control and you are in control of absolutely nothing. Right. And most people live under that illusion until they hear the word cancer or they hear a terminal illness. And And it takes that to wake them up. Right. If you're if you're lucky, you learn that within the first year of being married. And if you don't learn it then, you learn it when your first child comes along. And if you don't learn it after that, there's just not a lot of hope for you, right? You know, just, <laughs> oh, yeah, good stuff. All right, y'all. So there, there is the, there's the Holy Spirit being poured out. Uh, and let me just also, uh, as we get on over, we're going to read Peter's sermon here in just a second. One of the things that Luke does in, in these earlier chapters is he will often... Um, lay these uh, narratives out and they in some way parallel the ministry of Jesus. And this early episode here uh, parallels what happened with Jesus and Luke. If you remember, uh, uh, John the Baptist is baptizing. Jesus goes to be baptized by John the Baptist, right, to, um, to, give, to um, throw in his lot with the message of John, right, to, to show that he is... Um, working in the pattern that John is setting up. He's baptized by John in water. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, right? Descends upon Jesus visibly, physically in the form of a dove. And then Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for the temptation. But immediately after temptation, Luke tells us, now he came back in power, in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee. And there he began to preach. And as he begins to preach, he calls his first followers. Same thing happens right here in Acts. The Holy Spirit comes, he descends, right? He fills the early disciples here. And then what happens? Peter gets up, he preaches. And as he preaches, the first disciples are called in this whole new age that Peter says that we're in the middle of now, right? Something significant has changed. Uh, And so that's, that's what happens on the next page where Peter gives this sermon. Page 18. Uh, the first sermon in Acts. Now, I think I mentioned earlier, there's about 24 speeches, sermons in the book of Acts. And they are all significant in one way or another. These early ones from Peter are just absolutely fantastic. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, I, I think I mentioned last week that there was a, um, 
in one of the commentaries, the guy was quoting a secular, you know, this, this guy was not, he's not a believer, he's not a Christian, uh, but he was, a, he was a teacher of rhetoric in a major university. And he said that this first sermon that Peter gives in Acts 2 is a rhetorical masterpiece of the first century, right? It's just, it's just almost perfect what Peter says here. So what I want to do is I want to read through this whole sermon with you, and it's going to span from page 18 uh, all the way over to the top of page 21. So you can kind of track along with me there. I want you to hear this whole sermon, and then we'll go back and we'll start to uh, pick into the details of it. We're, we won't quite get through with it today, but we're, we're going to do our, give it our best shot. And this sermon is given in response to the last thing that the crowd said in 2, 12, and 13, where as they've heard, you know, the disciples speaking about the mighty works of God, they are astounded and perplexed. And they said, wait a minute, what, what could this be? And some sneered and said, they're all full of new wine. So uh, Peter is now going to get up and explain what's going on. So Acts 2, 14 through 36, page 18 in your notes there. It says, now Peter stood up with the eleven. So it's Peter plus the other 11 apostles, the 12. And he raised his voice and he proclaimed to them, men of Judah, uh, circle men of Judah. I'm going to say something about that in just a second. Men of Judah and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. In other words, that doesn't happen till later. No, that's not what he said. In other words, it's, no, it's, it's too early. Nobody gets drunk this early in the morning, right? That can't be what's going on. Instead, 2.16, on the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days, and they will prophesy. And I will display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. And the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and remarkable or the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." Now, there's two key things I think that this is brought to Peter's mind for. Number one, it explains the pouring out of the Spirit, right? But then it gets to the conclusion, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So keep those two things in mind. Acts 2.22, look at what he says. Men of Israel. Notice he said men of Judah first, right? So those are the people living the... Close by, all right, closest in where Jerusalem is. Now, men of Israel, that's a more general uh, statement here. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, the Nazarene, or just Jesus of Nazareth, was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. So Peter knows that this crowd knows what's happened. Right. They, they, right. And remember, this is this is uh, some 50 days after the Passover. So the, these are people that would have more than likely still been there uh, when the uh, when the events of Jesus crucifixion took place. And everybody was talking about it in Jerusalem. You know, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they all assumed that everybody would have known about this. Right. Um, 
And then I love this statement here, right? 223. Though he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Uh, the Greek is far more specific there. Uh, Peter says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. He makes it very clear that y'all are the ones that have, that have killed him, right? And you use lawless men to do it. This one kind of takes the sting out of it a little bit. Verse 24, but God raised him up, ending the pains of his death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that statement. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. We'll talk about that a little later. Acts 2.25, the bottom of page 19. And so David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not leave me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. So he quotes from David, Psalm 16. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Acts 2, 29, top page 20. Now look at what he says. Brothers. Notice how he goes from the general to the more specific. And now he is making himself one of the crowd. Brothers. Right? Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And since he was a prophet, he, know, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on the throne. And seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades and his flesh did not experience decay. So God has resurrected this Jesus and we are all witnesses of this. Acts 2.33, just right below that. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father um, the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Notice it's Jesus who received the Holy Spirit, but poured it out on the people. You see, that, that, that's a really important connection. Uh, 2.34, for it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Boom! Man, a lot. Peter doesn't pull any punches. That is not a, that is not a weak sermon. Now, look at the way they respond. Acts 2.37, top of page 21. Now, when they heard this, they, count, they came under deep conviction. That is terrible. Cross that out. The, 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 the Greek here says uh, they were cut to the heart. Isn't that, isn't that far more powerful? Yeah, pierced to the heart, right? In other words, Peter's words just cuts right through to the very core of who they are. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, well, brothers, what must we do? What must we do? 238, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, read the very next statement, because I'm going to say something about this. Acts 240, and with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, 
be saved from this corrupt generation. Right? Uh, it, is, it is fairly clear that as Luke records these sermons, uh, these are not the full sermons. These are, these are summary sermons that give the main points of what Peter says, because as he says here, with many other words, uh, they were, and the idea is they were continually testifying to them and urging them, right, uh, to be saved from this corrupt generation. So uh, this, this sermon represents the, the core of what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. I had a, I had a teacher in seminary, uh, a preaching uh, uh, a teacher, and he uh, talked about this sermon. And he said, this sermon that Peter preaches in Acts 2 is a perfect sermon. And he said, let me tell you why it's perfect. You can preach it in under three minutes so everybody can follow along, right? Uh, he, he uses scripture to interpret scripture so that people understand what's going on, right? He doesn't use illustrations out of football, baseball. Y'all know what I'm talking about. They didn't have that back then, right? He uses scripture to illustrate his points, right? And at the end, when he finishes... <clears throat> He puts the blame squarely on the people that need to have it so that at the end, when he finishes, everybody says, well, then, Peter, what do we need to do? And then the guy asked, he said, how many of y'all ever preached a sermon? You know, a lot of guys raised their hands up. He said, how many have ever said to you, brother, what are we supposed to do at the end of the sermon? He said, if, if people aren't at least thinking that, you're not preaching like the apostles did. Right. And, and, and another thing that was that was powerful. Right. There's no use to give the application for the sermon until people ask that question. If if nobody had said, well, Peter, what are we supposed to do? Well, they just should just pack up and go home because they didn't get what he just said. Right. Because the core. Now, I hope you all picked up on the core of this sermon. Right. The first part of it was explaining why they're not drunk. This was the pouring out of the spirit. But if you want to get to the heart of what's going on, the Lord God has made Jesus, who was crucified some 50, years, 50 days ago, he has made him both the Lord and the Messiah, and y'all killed him. What are you going to do now? Right? The very thing they had been hoping for, they became the instruments of the Messiah's destruction. Now, now think about that. If you're really picking up on what he's saying, that will cut right to the core, right? Cuts right to the heart. And he doesn't pull any punches, right? Peter's not trying to win friends and influence people in this. He just states the reality of what's going on. Because as the Spirit's moving, right, he probably has some idea. They need to understand the significance of this so they can get to the next part. And it's not until they ask, brothers, what should we do? That's when Peter tells them what to do. That's when the application comes. Well, you need to repent, right? And you need to be baptized, all of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, next week we're going to talk about what all that means because that, that is significant. Um, this, this is, as far as I can tell, this is the only place in Acts that you have a specific uh, instruction given after something like this, after, after you know, a sermon and then the response to it. So we're going to talk a lot about that uh, next week. But you can see the power of what Peter says here. And then also uh, this happens, and I don't want you to miss this. 2, 241 on page 21, the conclusion to this. Uh, it says, now, so those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 
3,000 people were added to them. 3,000 people. Right? Every time I read that, I, I remember this. I remember uh, Jesus in John 14. Uh, Jesus in John 14 is talking to the apostles. And this, this passage always used to just, uh, what are you talking about? It just eluded me. And, and uh, Jesus is talking about his miracles and the works that he's doing. And there he says, listen, anybody that believes in me will do the same works that I have done. And also you'll do much greater works as well. They think, what? Raising people from the dead? We're going we're to, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't seem like you can get much better than that, right? I don't think, you know, but I, I don't think the greater that Jesus was using there necessarily talks about the quality of those works. I think he's probably looking forward to what happens here in the book of Acts. And it's the quantity of the things that are going to happen through the apostles. And this, this is what blows me away about that. On this, with this sermon, Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter, brings more people to Jesus than Jesus did in his entire earthly ministry. Right? Now think about that for a minute. Think about that from one sermon. And this is his first one. Ooh, he gets an A in preaching class, right? I don't think he can do better than that. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of things. I've never seen anybody preach and have 3,000 people say, I want to come to Jesus, right? That's a lot of baptizing, right? And man, last time I checked, Jerusalem's a pretty dry place. You know? I mean, yeah, it's incredible, right? What happens here? I, you know, I've often thought about this just, just in terms of um, uh, Jesus several times. And Paul even, even talks about uh, in his letters, he, he talks about uh, in, Th in Th Thessalonians, he says, listen, uh, who is our glory and, and who is our joy in the Lord? Isn't it all y'all? All y'all that have come to faith under my ministry and now I see what y'all are doing and you're faithful and your hope has, has been proclaimed to the other nations. So even your neighbors are now asking, what are those Thessalonians up to, right? And what Paul is saying is, I'm so proud of y'all, right? And whenever I think about this sermon, right, I think about Jesus being in heaven, looking down at Peter, after Peter's denied him three times, after Peter went back to the fishing nets and Jesus had to come get him and say, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love me. Then tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep, Peter, right? So he calls him back in and reminds him, you're going to be the foundation of the early church, right? And here Peter gets up his first sermon out of the gate, 3,000 people come to Jesus and Jesus looks down on him and he says, that's my boy. That's my boy, right? That's what, we, that's what I was training him for. There he goes. That just sends chills down me, right? Jesus let some of his most powerful works be done by his people through the apostles, right? I mean, I mean think about it. Jesus is the one who, who took the brunt of all the, the beatings and the, and the hostility. Now, now, Peter's going to get beat up here a little bit later. I'm not taking anything away from that. But Jesus in his ministry, it, it looks like an utter failure when you look at it from an outside perspective, right, without the eyes of faith. He was crucified, and for most people that would be it. His followers are saying he was raised from the dead, but who believes nonsense like that, right? And then... Right when they're about to begin the mission to take the message to the whole world, what does Jesus do? He goes back into heaven. All right, boys, it's up to y'all now. I've given you everything you need. Oh, one more thing, the Holy Spirit, and get ready, because when he comes, we're going to turn this whole place upside down, 
right? That's what the book of Acts is about. And how Jesus continues to work in and through his people in a very powerful way. And and I'm going to suggest something to you. There's nothing changed about what he calls us to today. That the Lord is still working in his people in ways that we don't often comprehend. And and I'm just going to tell you, it doesn't happen in church buildings, right? This building, we, we come here and we call it First Evangelical Church. This building has nothing to do with the church besides it being the place where people who are the church meet within it. Do you understand what I'm saying? The people are the church, and that's where the Spirit is, and where the Spirit has immersed His people in His power and presence, and He fills them. Those people can turn the world upside down, right? And I'm, I'm kind of hoping that that's where we're getting to in our culture, maybe coming back to it again, because people are now starting to realize, boy, we're in a real mess, and that's generally when the Spirit tends to bring works that you can't have happen any other time. All right, y'all, now we're over. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Some of y'all need to get on back to work. Let me, let me pray and get y'all out of here. And uh, anybody has any questions, I'll be happy to stick around and talk after this. But let, let me pray for us and we'll dismiss. Father, we thank you for your word and for all the ways that you bless us and provide for us. We, every, every time I teach anything, I just feel like we're, we're just skimming the surface of all that could possibly be said. And of course, we're going to come back and look at the sermon in more depth next week. But uh, as we read this out loud and I hear these words of Peter, I think he still speaks as powerfully today as he did when he, when he spoke these words some 2,000 years ago. And the truth that he uh, puts forth in this is still uh, relevant to where we are today, to understand where we've come from, but also where everything is heading. And so I pray that in everything we do together, that we would learn more about you so that we could accomplish the main goal, and that is to love uh, you with all that we are, but also love our neighbors as ourselves, uh, pouring ourselves out for one another in the same way that Jesus poured himself out for us. And so we give ourselves to you and we pray for all the ways that we need help and hope uh, through the rich personal knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his awesome name we pray. Amen.